The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, taking a long look at life under the sun. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Happy Mother's Day, moms. Thanks for being here on Mother's Day. It's, it's such a, a great day to celebrate. Um, we love having moms. In fact, uh, our church, our families, uh, our society would not be what it is without moms. And so we are very grateful. And I realize there are moms who are on the continuum. There are, are fresh moms just had babies for the first time and they're, they're, they're new to motherhood and then there's moms who are figuring out navigating adolescence with their teenagers and moms who have kids out of the house and grandmas and great grandmas and so wherever you're at on that spectrum we want to honor you and thank you for the way that you love your families and those who are in our church uh, but we also want to realize that this could be a, a holiday that is it carries a, a tint of grief um, maybe we lost our mother, and it's just a day that realize, you know, that, that weight is there. Maybe our kids aren't with us to celebrate. And so we want to acknowledge both the joy and, and, and the sorrow that can come with that and say that this is a place that, that you can express that, and you're welcome here for that. Um, and, and I also realize there are moms in here or, or mo- people who want to be a mom, that God hasn't given them uh, a child yet, and, and are just praying and, and asking for God uh, to do that. And we want to pray and ask with you. Um, but we also want to show you, like this is, here in God's family, there's opportunity, all kinds of opportunity uh, for moms, for, for physical, like real, like in the flesh, dirty diaper moms, and, and, and ones who want to be moms and contribute and, and provide spiritually, provide spiritual motherhood and helping people grow up in the faith. And so we're glad you're here, wherever you're at in that. We want to, to thank you for the ways that you serve and love. In fact, I think there's not a better example of the self-sacrificial love of Jesus than motherhood, how moms lay their lives down for their families. And so we want to thank you and honor you for that. So to celebrate, there's a photo booth in the hospitality room. If you haven't already got a picture, uh, we'd love to snap a photo uh, for you, something to put up on your fridge, and we'll send those out to you later uh, in the next week. And there's also some pastries that we want to just bless you with. So uh, thank you, moms. I'm going to pray for moms. I'm going to pray for our our time together in the Word, and we'll just get right after it. Uh, Gracious Father, we, we give you praise and thanks for the godly women that are in our lives who love you, um, who desire to uh, yield to your call on their life in motherhood or, or in the secular world or wherever it may be, but especially for those who take the responsibility of caring for people spiritually and, and leading them uh, into, your, into the, our Heavenly Father's arms. And so we're thankful for these women. We pray that you continue to strengthen them. Uh, in whatever season of life that you have them in, that you would bless them greatly, um, as, especially as they lay down their lives and are, are reminded of Christ's sacrifice for them. Would you continue to bless us and our church with women like this? Um, and now, Father, as we turn our attention to your word, Father, open up our eyes, un, unblock our ears. Would you soften our hearts to receive and, and really approach this text honestly? I, I was convicted, Father, by, um, by the words of one of the songs, God be my everything. I feel like there, there's a lot of times where you're not my everything, and I'm thankful for the repentance that you've given us. Would you, would you offer more of that to your people today so that we can really say and, and really mean it, God be my everything. 
Um, so help us now. Help us to hear your voice. Uh, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You might be wondering why uh, we would cho- choose such a heavy scripture for uh, such a joyous day as Mother's Day. And, and I, I promise you, it, there's, it was, it's just how it falls, okay? Uh, uh, this is not necessarily geared towards mothers, but I think there is something here that, that will really help all of us sort of rest uh, in what God has for us. Research shows that we see anywhere from 300 to 700 advertisements a day, 300 to 700. And that's actually a conservative number. Some people think that it's upwards of the thousands. Marketers are skillfully working to exploit this condition that's in every human soul. A condition that says, I need more. So here we are scrolling through Facebook and Instagram, watching TV, and we see advertisements filling the space. People thinking, here's something that this person needs. And so you'll get these recommendations, right? And you look at those and you're like, you know what? I think I do need this. And before you know it, you've got a shopping cart, you're in the checkout, and you've got like six things in your Amazon cart. And it's like, how did this happen? But it happens because in our soul there's this hunger, there's this dream of a future with more, with bigger homes Nicer cars, more fashionable clothes, longer vacations. We accumulate stuff only to want the next newer, nicer, better product that hits the market. We get in this cycle of spending and accumulating. And the way that we accumulate all of this stuff is by money. You can't go to Target and buy stuff with handshakes and high fives. Right? You've got to have money. And so today as we come to our passage, the preacher is telling us that if you are going to live life under the sun, you have to, you will have some sort of a relationship with money. It's absolutely unavoidable. Now parents do well by teaching their kids how to budget, by showing them how to give and save and spend in God-honoring Ways. And it's without wise instruction, without godly stewardship, that a relationship with money is likely to cause problems in our life. Now, statistically speaking, most people either have a lack of training or have ignored that kind of training and now, at some point in their life, face some sort of money issues. Now, for some people, we can trace these money issues back to laziness. For some people in our society, work is a four-letter word. People can be undisciplined, immature, and irresponsible. They're unwilling to, to work a job that is seemingly beneath them. And so this inability to, to get a job and hold a job leaves them financially depleted. They face some sort of poverty where their unpaid bills bills evolve into credit issues, and with credit issues becomes relational strain. Ask any married couple uh, who's in some sort of financial crisis how their marriage is going, and most times, in fact, if not all times, there's a lot of tension placed on marriages when these financial issues arise. It's hard 
to keep good friends, when you're always going to them asking for extra money. If you're dating someone, it's hard to keep a girlfriend if she's the one who's paying for your Applebee's adventures every time. It seems as if people with this lazy posture towards life push back on Solomon's prescription that we saw a couple weeks ago about one hand of toil where we, we exert ourselves and we work and we, we use our energy and resources and ability in a way that honors God by, by contributing to society while having one hand of quietness and contented. For the lazy person, that seems too straining. They would rather have two hands of quietness. It's awfully quiet when you sit on the couch by yourself. But the Proverbs, if we go back a book of the Bible, the Proverbs actually say that a sluggard's hand's not actually okay with two hands of quietness. The, the sluggard's hand is in the bowl of potato chips, and it's left there because it's too lazy to be brought to its mouth. And so Solomon would say, Friend, in a very gentle, fatherly rebuke, he would say, friend, why don't, you, why don't you go outside and look at the sidewalk? Look at the ants that scurry across. Watch how they work and learn from them. Because even though work is frustrating and it seems futile, there is a good in our work. That there is something about our work that does glorify God, even if it is frustrated. And so God says, go, create and cultivate. Go work hard. But before we start judging someone, you know, on the ability to work or not to work or uh, to hold down a job, before we get to judgy, Solomon starts us off in our passage today in Ecclesiastes 5 by telling us that just because someone is poor does not mean it's their fault. Verse 8 starts with how the powerful perpetuate the poorness of others to preserve their own wealth. That there are people out there who can and want to work hard their whole life, and they will work hard their whole life, and they never seem to get ahead. And the cause of this, a lot of times, at least what, what Solomon pinpoints, is this systemic injustice where the rich want to keep the poor, poor. And we see this with our political parties today, where political parties want to keep the poor and the marginalized in that place, where those people are dependent upon that political party in order to gain the votes. So they perpetuate poorness. And this is an injustice. Solomon tells us this is unjust. This is not what God intends. And so we shouldn't be, but we shouldn't be surprised by this. This is what it's like to live life under the sun, there is a tendency that money, when it's our, our cruel taskmaster, makes us do cruel things to others. But the problem with money can typically be traced back to an issue that when, when money becomes elevated above God, that's when we really have money issues. So you could have money and you, you maybe you'll never know what poverty feels like. But there's still money issues because money has been elevated 
over God. And you don't even have to have a lot of money for this to be an issue. You just have to want it. It's this insatiable hunger for a full bank account, whatever the word full means to you. And chasing that desire, and even if your bank account is full, can be enough to bankrupt your life. See, what happens in our heart, the love of things wages a territory war in our heart against love of God, love of others, and love of virtue. We often don't realize the effects of being bombarded with all of these temptations, with all of these advertisements and social media feeds that tells us that we need to accumulate more. We don't realize how HGTV and the leisurely strolls through Target stockpile ammunition and sabotage contentment in our lives. Now, I'm not one to think that the devil is behind every bush. Some people think that. I think that that's kind of a waste of energy. But I do think that Satan knows how, how to use marketing and advertising in a way that can keep us from really enjoying God. Now, Jesus, when he was teaching in his ministry, he told us that we cannot serve both God and money. There's no way to do it. There's conflicting uh, objectives. It's, it's like you can't be a, a Cubs fan and a Cardinals fan. Right? You can't have them both. There's competing objectives. Both of them want to come out on top of their division. Same as with money and God. They have conflicting objectives when they're elevated over one or the other. Now, money wants you to fill yourself full. Money wants you to accumulate and keep, to posture and protect, to increase and expand. But God says, I want you to pour yourself out. I want you to give and invest eternally. I want you to increase by decreasing. I want you to seek the kingdom of God first and then everything else will be added to you. See, money says, it's this empty promise. Money says, I can give you your heart's desire, but God says, your desires are way too small. And as we look in verse 10 of chapter 5, we're shown these empty promises of wealth. That when you, when you have this much or this idea that when I have this much or make this much or my bank account is this full, then I'll know I've arrived. When I have this toy or my garage looks like this or my house like this or my wardrobe like this, then I know I've arrived. But like a kid who gets a shiny new toy on Christmas Day, it's got all this promise of enjoyment for the weeks and the months to come. The kid gets it, and typically by the end of the week, they're done with it. They've had more fun with the box that it came in than the toy itself. See, no amount of money can satisfy this deep pit in our heart. And it's God's grace that he does not allow that to happen. Verse 10 in chapter 5. He starts out, or he says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. See, there's always another dollar out there to get. There's always another toy to have in the, in the garage. But once you get it, 
another desire pops up. It's this desire that no matter what you feed into it will not be full. But not only does wealth create this sense of being unsatisfied, it brings with it its own vexation and frustration. In fact, Solomon, as he's talking about this, he, he several times he labels things as grievous evils, right? Evils or or things that are just not the way it's supposed to be. Just as a, a moth is drawn to a lamp, wealth brings out the mooches. That's what verse eleven is talking about. He says. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his own eyes? What happens when we, when we accumulate wealth? We start thinking about how do I protect this? People are going to start coming after this. Uh, hip-hop artists who make it big, they say as soon as they hit it big, they've got cousins coming out of the woodwork that they, don't, they never knew about. Right? They're all looking for a piece of the pie. Family members come out, but Uncle Sam, he comes out too, right? He starts seeing you making a good chunk of money, and he's like, you know what? I'm going to start, I'm going to move you up into a different tax bracket. People see money, they're drawn to it, and they want some. And what happens is a money lover, somebody who loves their money, wants to protect it and keep it for themselves, what they do is they tend to swat these people away. They don't have a generous heart towards others. They don't don't see their gifts as something to be given unto somebody else. They see it as something to be protected. Put eight-foot walls, uh, fences around it. Keep it safe. They'd rather clear out their kitchen of hungry people, kick them out, and then gorge on a feast for themselves. And verse 12 says that when this happens, the wealthy will just have trouble sleeping at night. Their full bellies keep them awake. It's, it's so ironic that even the, with the best mattress that money can buy, there's still a sense of unrest. See, striving and, and accumulating makes it hard to rest because, one, we're, we're worried about protecting our stuff and who's going to take it from us. we got to sleep with one eye open. But it also creates this, this vacuum that we continually need to fill. Right? It proves that Biggie was right when he said, more money, more problems. Right? It's the wealthy man who has, a hard trouble, has trouble sleeping at night while the laborer, whether he has much or little, sleeps soundly. Now, all of this starts to point us to the first grievous evil here that upsets the preacher in verse 13. He says, there is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. See, what he's tracing here is that love for money will evolve into a greed for money which will turn into destruction by money. Living with tight fists around our stuff will never end well for us because in the end, we lose it all. Now, we might try to grab more. Right? We got something, we just want to keep stocking up, accumulating and when we try to grab for more, we lose it all. That's what verse 14 goes on to say, that that. 
a wealthy man goes and, and looks for more in, in venture and he makes some bad investment decisions and then all of a sudden before you know it, his whole, uh, all of his wealth has deteriorated. It's like when I'm playing uh, wiffle ball with my son. He's about four years old. He's got this little tee out in the yard and, and I'm trying to teach him how to swing a bat right and it's not going very well. Uh, but, but he'll, we have about six wiffle balls and we'll try to hit them and, and he'll go in and pick them up and he can get about three in his hands and his arms before he starts to lose it when he goes to pick up for the fourth one. And when he loses it, he loses them all. And that's what happens when we're pursuing money. We go for more and more, and our hands are empty. And then what happens, it's not only painful for us, but Solomon's looking at this as like, this also has an impact on the next generation. Right? In Hebrew culture, it's an honorable thing for fathers and mothers, for, for the generation before, to leave an inheritance for those who come after and so he says it's humiliating, not only for you, but for your kids, that this pursuit of money, that what you have, it, it's gone, and then what? But it's people who pursue money and run into bad venture who tend to become a danger to themselves. Right, it's the Enron executive who goes and commits suicide because he's lost it all. Right, you lose it all, it becomes dangerous for you. Now, there are some people who can hold on and protect money and their wealth all the way to the end of their life, only for death to come and pry it from their cold, dead hands. Verses 15 and 16 remind us that we come into life with nothing and we will leave with nothing. Right? It, it's one of those truisms, it's one of those cliches that's, that's always said and, and people who say it, you know, it's like they don't actually believe it themselves because here they are accumulating. And, and Solomon says this is a grievous evil. Now the preacher has already lamented leaving your hard work and the, the bounty of your hard work behind to someone else who didn't work for it. He did that in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. But this time, what he's looking at is he's focusing on the subhuman quality of life that this uh, affection for and, and leaning towards money creates. And he goes to this in, in verse 17. He says, moreover, all his days... He eats, so he, he's going to eat, he's going to have a feast for himself, but he's eating in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. That just captures the frustration. See, darkness is an imagery for loneliness and isolation. If we love money so much, all of our affections, all of our, our love goes to that and we start to wall off everything else. Our relationships suffer. It's like Scrooge. Right? The greediness turns us into a hard, cold, money-loving person. No joy. Relationships get put on the altar of wealth and the side effects are anger, vexation, and sickness. Now, the preacher looks out and sees the damage that a love of money can do. 
for people who are under the sun. And, and the preacher, we've talked about this before, Solomon was probably the most wealthy man that's ever lived in, in biblical times. He had wealth. He knew what it was like to have much. He knew what it was like to accumulate and grow his empire. But he gives us a different approach. He says there's not a lot to gain in accumulating and building up and expanding he says, it's better to enjoy what you have. He said, don't, don't hoard, don't squander the gifts that are already in your hand. Enjoy them. This is what he says in verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. See, we have a set amount of days on earth. We don't know when our time is going to expire. God only knows that. And if we spend all of our time accumulating, then we could very well miss out on the enjoyment that's to be had and the things that's already in our hands. Jesus told a parable in Luke 12 about a, a wealthy fool a guy who had an empire that kept growing and expanding. He'd, he'd bring in his harvest and he realized I have to build bigger storehouses and bigger barns and accumulated, accumulated, accumulated. He finally came to the point, he's like, I finally have arrived. I have what I want. I'm just gonna sit back and enjoy everything. And God says, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. See, this is precisely the evil the preacher sees under the sun at the beginning of chapter 6. One that weighs heavy on mankind. Now, this means there's a pressure that's felt across the board. That everyone can relate to this evil to some extent. That's in verse 2. He's, or actually, we'll start with verse 1. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man whom God gives wealth possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet, God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is like the kid, you know, growing up, my parents, for some reason, they didn't let us, like, have video games, uh, but I had a lot of buddies that were really into video games. We'd go over to the house, and they were always kind of like unamused by the stuff that they had. They had cool toys and the trampoline in the backyard and video games and, you know, all the stuff that I, like, I just wasn't really part of my life uh, in the day-to-day -day life. And I'd come over, and I'd be like, oh, my gosh, all oh, this is awesome. This is incredible. And they're like, yeah, I guess. They've got all of this stuff right at their fingertips, but it seems as if they don't enjoy it. See, this, the vanity of the situation is, is this. What's the point in having something if you cannot enjoy it? Now, to get this message across, the, the preacher uses an illustration that would really resonate in Hebrew culture at this time. He paints a picture of, of this, this man who has accumulated a lot of, of, of wealth. 
He's got a lot of possessions and things. He's got a lot of kids. He's got a long life. Now, the, all of these are indicators of being blessed. And he says he's got 100 kids. He's lived, I think, like 2,000 years. All of these are indicators of God's blessing is how they viewed the world at that time. So the more kids God gave you, the more blessed you were. The, the more stuff you have, the bigger your bank account, the more blessed you are. The longer you live, it's clear that God has blessed you. And so Solomon looks at this man and, and, and surveys his material blessing and his, his kids, 100 kids. I'm thinking, no thank you, but he's got 100 kids and he's living a super long life. Now he's clearly blessed here. There's no doubt of the blessing that's on his life, but this man is unable to enjoy it. See, under, under all of the blessing that he has, there is still a curse of vexation, of frustration, because he doesn't have the capacity for delight. Now, the preacher, he's helping us out here because he pinpoints where this dissatisfaction resides. It's not the number in the bank account. It's not our eyes don't get to see anything beautiful or our belly doesn't get to taste good food. He's, he's saying the dissatisfaction of this man comes from his soul. It's, God gives him everything that he desires, yet God does not give him the ability to enjoy them. And goes down in verse 3. He said, if a man fathers a hundred children, lives many years, so the days of his life are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. See, the dissatisfaction comes from our soul. That's one of the biggest errors that we can make in this life is confusing the origin of dissatisfaction for another place. It'd be like going to a foot doctor if you have a toothache. Right? We, we look for all these external things to help us and to, to situate and, and make us satisfied, but, but really the issue isn't an external issue. It's a, a soul issue. Your dissatisfaction has less to do with your surroundings and station in life. And if you spend your energy chasing things in that arena, it's only going to, to make striving and working and toiling that much more frustrating. That you become a, a sucker for Satan's marketing. That you're chasing wind while ignoring the problem in your soul. Now, this is why in verse 3, Solomon says it's better to be a stillborn child than to be a cursed, blessed man. Now that, that's a heavy statement. Right? That, that, that actually that sounds really insensitive, does it not? But what he's getting after here, he's saying that a stillborn child gains more rest in having nothing than the unrest of a man who is chasing anything. And it's so ironic to me that the stillborn baby has a better understanding of rest and wholeness than this other guy who has everything.
Now, this guy who's living life under the sun, he has a, a daily, if not three times a day, reminder of the futility of life, and that's right in his belly. His daily encounter with hunger, which is noted in verse 7. Let me flip there. Verse 7, he says, all the toil, all the work of man is for his mouth. You know what that's saying? The reason why you have a job is to feed yourself. But here's the problem. You can work and work and work and eat and eat and eat, yet your appetite is not satisfied. See, this, this man who's living life under the sun, hunger points to the spiritual reality in his soul that all this toil and still no rest. He can keep consuming, he can keep accumulating, but there's nothing that seems to satisfy. In fact, there seems to be an adverse effect. It's like eating saltines when you're thirsty. It's only going to, uh, I can't think of the word. It's only going to make it worse. I had a really good word I was going to use. It's only going to make the situation worse. only adds to the frustration. And in verse 8, he asks, what's the advantage of the wise man over the fool? And then he concludes in verse 9. He says, better is the the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. He's saying it's better to see what's out there and refrain from chasing it than to keep indulging and indulging and indulging. Because you're essentially just living like a hamster on a hamster wheel. Now, if we're honest with ourselves... If you give yourself the permission to be honest about the degree of contentment in your life, the degree of satisfaction in your life, I think you will admit that you are familiar with this feeling of being dissatisfied, unsatisfied, that you're, you're familiar with this sense of chasing and striving and toiling But we tend to be like the wealthy man who misdiagnoses the origin of the issue. We keep thinking, you know, once I get to this place, once I have this, once my kids are in this stage of life, once this or that, or ha, ha, ha. We misdiagnose where this discontentment comes from. We think if in my career, if I, if I could just make a, an impact on the industry, then I'll finally feel like I can chill out. Or, may, or maybe I just need to change careers. Single folks tend to think that, that this feeling that they have is going to disappear when they find that perfect somebody. Once I get to this place financially, once I hit these goals off my list, then I can be happy. Or, or maybe you're at a point in your life where, where you're looking back and it's like, I had that stuff. And now I'm here. That, that All of that is in my past. It's gone for good. Now, people in the first half of their life tend to strain forward 
right? Chase it forward. People on the second half of their life tend to look backwards and say, it's back there. It's in the good old days. And even if we heaped up all of our blessing, all of the gifts that we have, we would still have this sense of unsettledness in our soul. Now, friends, this is why coming to church is so important. When we come to to church, God helps us pinpoint the place where this dissatisfaction resides. He, he, He comes at us and he helps us to seek the correct treatment. He, he tells us the answer isn't in, in accumulating more stuff or relationships. That stuff's only fuel to the fire if you have this dissatisfaction in your soul. And so we come to church. And when you come to God with all the aches and pains of life under the sun, what he does is he takes his hand and he puts it on our soul. And he says, does it hurt here? For those of us who are, who are willing to be done with ignoring the pain, to, to, to be done with brushing it off and, and placing it on something else, for those who have a self-awareness of the soul to say, yeah, that's where it hurts, we can finally admit no matter what I have or what I do or what I achieve, there's a, so- a soreness in my soul. It keeps me up at night with vexation and anger. It isolates me. And just when I think the pain has subsided, it's like a sneeze that comes out of nowhere with a jab in the ribs. It me of sleep, it consumes my thoughts, it consumes energy. It is heavy on me. It crushes me. Now, if we can admit that, if we can say this is where the pain is, then that's where God moves in. That's where God moves in and he says, I can supply you with something unlike anything else under the sun. Something that will quiet your noisy soul. Something that will give your weary soul rest. I can give you the contentment that you're wanting. I can get you off of the treadmill and put you on the park bench. But how? You would think that it has to do with some sort of like ultimate level of spirituality, right? Some super spiritual accomplishment. Pray six hours a day and then you'll get it. But that's not, that's not how God says he's going to do it. See, God gives us the rest in our souls by giving us the ability to stop and enjoy what's already in your hand. This is what he's pointing to, what the preacher's pointing to in verse 19 of, of chapter 5 if we go back. He says, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possession and power to enjoy them and to accept his law and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift from God. See, without the ability to enjoy the gifts that we have It's like having a CD without a CD player. 
There's no way to actually enjoy it. You could maybe enjoy it as a coaster. That's the best it gets. You can maybe uh, imagine what it's like to listen to the CD, but if you don't have a way to enjoy it, a means to, to pull the gift out and enjoy it for what it is, you'll always be left wanting. But God says, you know what? I'm going to give you the ability. I'm going to give you the gift, and I'm going to give you the ability to enjoy the gift. Either way, it's all coming from God. Now, the ability to rest and to enjoy means that we have to loosen the grip of our greedy hands. We have to take a break from accumulating and gathering. And I'm not saying stop working. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm saying to enjoy what's in your hands, you have to at least acknowledge what's already in your hands. You have to take your eyes off of what you're chasing after in order to look down into your hand. And when you take a look, there might be a lot there. There might be a little there. But either way, no one is empty-handed. There's not a single person. God's grace is so magnificent that, that to every person, every place, and every time, God has shown grace and blessing and gifts. Now, some people will push back on this and they feel like, you know what, there's, there's, I'm looking at my hand and there's not a lot in there, right? Maybe you do feel that. Maybe you feel like you're empty-handed and you might need help seeing what God has already put in your hand. Now, that's why at Sacred City Church, we live life on life. We share our life together, right? And if you don't have a community that's able to help you consider what's already in your hand, consider this moment, God putting something in your hand. It's an invitation to join a community where we want to we maximize our life by seeing what God has put here, with the gifts that's already here. Now, you might gristle when I say, you know, it's God who's giving the gifts, we tend to be very hardworking, proud people. We want to say, you know what? I worked for this. I, I earned this lifestyle. I earned what's in my garage and in my bank account. That's my work. God didn't give it to me. That mentality is so ignorant. Who is it that gave you the skill set to do what you do? Who is it that placed you in a time and in a place with the resources to pursue what you're pursuing? Who is it that gave you the energy and the physical ability to do what you're doing? It was God. God has dealt you this lot. And to think that way, to think that I'm entitled to this or I earn this, will only make enjoying your gifts harder. Because you think of what you've exerted to obtain it, and the payoff and reward isn't the equivalent of what you've paid into it. So you're upset. It's not as good. But if it's a gift, you can enjoy it. You can enjoy it for what it is. Another objection people might have, just sitting here, I'm trying to think through how I, how I processed it this week. If I stop the hustle, then I won't have enough. Right? A couple weeks ago, the preacher was talking about... Uh, a way to enjoy life is to have one handful of toil, right, working and exerting yourself in your labor, and one hand of quietness. 
Now, a person who works this way, one hand of work, one hand of quietness, is going to have less than the person who has two hands full of work, somebody who's just completely absorbed in what they're doing and making a dollar. But that person with one hand of quietness and one of work is going to have a better life. They'll have a smaller paycheck, might cut into their lifestyle, a quality of life, but it's going to overall be a better experience. But this means, in this case, if you're a person that has two hands full of work, you have to give one up. It means that your lifestyle might need to change. And it might look like a big sacrifice of all these dollars that you see, oh, now I, I don't get that. But what is to be gained is so much greater that you can actually have the ability to appreciate and enjoy what you already have. But here's the promise that we can hold on to. And when Jesus was doing ministry, people, he sensed that they were so anxious about life, about having enough, having the right, having clothes, having food to eat. And, and Jesus says, you know what, guys, just take a look at the sparrows. Take a look at the birds. They don't have jobs to clock into. They don't have storehouses. They don't have anything to help accumulate anything. But God takes care of them. Or look at the flowers, they're more radiant than Solomon, richest man ever, had all of the extravagance that he could want. They ha they're more beautifully dressed than Solomon in all of his splendor. If God cares for flowers and birds in this way, just think of how much greater he cares for you. So there's a promise here that God will take care of you even when you're not grinding it out. And lastly, I'm, I'm just thinking, there's an objection of, you know, if I just... If I stop, if I stop going hard, if I stop to look down on my hands, somebody else is going to get ahead. Right? Somebody else is going to capitalize on that opportunity. I'm going to miss out. And my whatever doesn't increase. Now, if that's your mentality, that just proves that you don't have the ability to enjoy what you already have. Life is all toil and no enjoyment. And what God is offering is a means to enjoy the gifts that we have, to accept your lot, to accept the hand that you've been dealt, and actually enjoy it. And for when one does that, verse 21 of chapter 5 says, that God will keep us occupied with joy in our hearts. That we actually won't remember the frustration of never being satisfied. And strangely, in what would seem like a lack of something, we suddenly find satisfaction in it. See, what Solomon's getting after here is I'm closing this up. He's trying to show us that every gift that we have, everything that's in our hands is meant to draw you to the giver of that gift. We, we treasure God. We love God. We glorify God when we know how to enjoy the gifts that he's given. See, when the gifts of wealth and things and relationships and honor gets put ahead of God, suddenly these things become bankrupt. They're empty. But if we enjoy God in everything and everything in God, as Charles Simeon says, then it brings joy. What he's talking about is this awareness between the gift and the giver. If we can see that it's coming from the hand of God, we, we are actually free to enjoy this. 
Now, when you eat a meal, aside from the routine of saying grace, does it lead you to acknowledge God? When you're driving in your new car or moving into your new home, does that promote thanksgiving for what's here? When you listen to music, are you struck by the beauty? What about your money? Does that, does that make you uh, worship God for his extravagant blessings or, or the fact that your body is functioning and working? See, everything that we have is meant to draw our eyes beyond what's already in your hand. So as we look down in our hand, our eyes come up to where the gift came from. When we do that, we set our minds and our hearts not on the things, but on God. See, this is what the Lord's table does for us today. The elements point us to God who gives the ability to enjoy. He gives us the meal, and he gives us the ability to enjoy the meal. Not, not just in a physical sense. Nobody comes up and goes, ooh, this, this grape juice is quite exquisite. We're talking about a spiritual enjoyment where our souls are satisfied, where our, the discontentment in our hearts find contentment, where we finally find rest from our striving because we can look to Jesus and say that he's accumulated all of the wealth in heaven for us and he's giving it to us. And when we look to God, when we look into our hand and up to the giver, God comes back and he puts himself in our hands. We receive the bread as the body of Christ. We receive the wine as the blood of Christ. God himself giving himself to us, saying, take and eat. This is my body. This is my blood that's given for you. Be satisfied. See, this is pointing us to the reality that God's greatest gift to us wasn't plastic, wasn't metal or technology. It was in flesh and in blood. That Jesus came to seek and save, to give us rest, to help us find contentment so that we could better see the good giver of our gifts. So as you come to the table today, let the elements point you to the giver of the gifts, to eat and be satisfied, to enjoy and savor, for this is our lot. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word and how it is so helpful for us in navigating life. We realize that there, there are competing things in our life, uh, the riches and wealth and honor, these things that, that oftentimes slither their way up to the top. But, but if we do that, we miss everything good that you have to give us. Would you help us to enjoy the good that's here under the sun? Would you help our eyes to look down to our hand, to be content with what, what is there, and ultimately to acknowledge the giver of gifts? And now in this meal, would you satisfy our soul through Christ Jesus, our Lord, and his his forgiveness and his power and his might for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.